0: you guys are well, I don't know what the applause is for. I haven't done anything special yet, but thank you. <laughs> I want to welcome you guys this morning. I want to welcome those of you who may be joining us from another campus, especially those from our Sea Island campuses. They have moved into their new building for the first time today, so we're excited about that. <clears throat> welcome, Sea Island. So you guys are looking good. I see some of you have got your Easter colors on, already kind of trying out the new threads for the spring season. We're out to uh, dinner last night with some friends of ours, having a date with my wife, and uh, they were talking about different styles of people, and they were saying, like, your style is this, and your style is this. They weren't saying anything about my style. Apparently, I do not have very much style. And they said to my wife, like, your style is, um, I can't even remember the words, boho chic. I can't define either of those words. <clears throat> and then they kept going around, and they were like, And and Dana said, well, Adam does have a style. We kind of, at the house, we call his style baby gap. (laughs) And as you're looking at me, you're like, she's right. It's not wrong. I mean, I just haven't departed much from the way I dressed as a child. I like to keep it consistent. So, hey, if you have been with us uh, for the past few weeks, you know that we've been looking at the book of Daniel, specifically how it relates to our lives when faith and culture collide. And so, last couple of weeks, uh, first week of our series, we looked at a time when uh, Daniel and his friends were tempted by the king to conform to the culture around them. It was also the time where the king gave Daniel and his friends a new name, which we'll talk more about later. In week two of our series, we talked about a dream that the king had but couldn't understand. And so, he asked Daniel to interpret the dream. And after he did, the king began to realize there was something different about Daniel. And then last week, Pastor Greg talked about a statue the king created and then required everyone to worship. And when Daniel and his friends wouldn't worship it, he threw him in the furnace. But God protected him. So then the king began to realize there was something different about Daniel's God. So if I had to summarize where we are so far in our Daniel series based on what Pastor Greg, Pastor Josh have shared with us over the past three weeks, I'd say it like this. Number one, culture's greatest goal is to redefine our identity. Culture's greatest goal is to redefine our identity. Number two, culture's greatest test is to entice us to worship what it worships or to worship its gods. Basically, whatever it values most, whether it's money or power, whatever it might be. And then the third reality of our culture is something we're gonna talk about today. And that is that culture's greatest tool is distraction. Culture's greatest tool is distraction. Let me start with this. I wanna ask you a question. How many of you have ever heard uh, or used the phrase the writing is on the wall? Yeah, anybody? Haven't you ever heard the phrase? This would be the universal sign for I have heard the phrase. (laughs) So some of you have heard it. Well, it's it's usually used in the context that something is about to happen. And most times that something is not very good. About a year ago, I was sitting in a restaurant waiting on a friend to arrive. And the table beside me, on that table, there was a newspaper. And I couldn't help but notice it. There was kind of a big picture that it seemed a little bit out of place. And so I started to read the caption and realized that it was an ad to find an adoptive home for a dog. It was a picture of a dog. They were trying to find an adoptive home for it. So I grabbed it, and I started reading it, and I couldn't believe the words I was seeing. It was the world's worst sales pitch ever. So I could describe it to you, but it's probably better that I just read it. But before I do that, I want to show you a picture of the dog, okay? So here's the dog. (laughs) Cute dog, right, if you're a dog fan. So here's the ad. All right. Walter is an eight to 10 year old English bulldog. He's a wonderful old guy. He was found as a stray on the side of the road in horrible condition. His ears were infected and he didn't see very well. He has infections in his skin folds and on other areas of his body. Don't you want to take Walter home? (laughs) He has arthritis and has a hard time walking. He has not been neutered and has three testicles. (laughs) The ad continues, two of them are fine, one of them is a problem. (laughs) Just don't know what to do with that. So let's just pause for a second there. Like we need a time of response maybe. The word abundance is usually used in a (laughs) positive context there are some things you don't want an abundance of, right? <laughs> I just feel like this makes that list. So the ad goes on and says, he's getting better every day in his, in his home, in his foster home, but we're looking for his permanent home. Please let us know if you are interested in Walter. Now, I'm a dog fan, so don't misunderstand this question, but how many of you know that for Walter in his condition... The writing is on the wall. I mean, this was a year ago that I saw the ad, Walter may very well have gone on to a better place where he's been healed of his infections and his arthritis and maybe even his abundance. We don't know. (laughs) It's almost impossible to make a transition from a story like that. But today we're going to look at a passage in Scripture where there was also some writing on the wall. Uh, This is from Daniel chapter 5. In fact, this is where the expression comes from. If you've ever wondered, it's taken from this passage of Scripture in Daniel 5. In Daniel 5, we have a new king. His name is Belshazzar. Say Belshazzar. It's harder than you think, isn't it? Belshazzar followed Nebuchadnezzar as king. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the king we've been talking about for the past few weeks. But Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar have some things in common. They both live for themselves... And they both live for the moment. And so as we pick it up in Daniel 5, the beginning of the chapter has Belshazzar throwing this huge party where he's got like a thousand, literally a thousand people there. And it, in the first, it's, you know, they're having a good time. There, there's a lot of drinking, probably a lot of other stuff. In fact, in the first... Four verses, the word drink or drinking is mentioned five times. Whenever you see that kind of concentration in scripture, there's no real need for interpretation. It just means people were getting tore up. That's what it means. And so that's what's happening with Belshazzar. They're having a good time. People are doing their thing. But what made things worse was Belshazzar was using the holy cups that were taken from the temple in Jerusalem. These were the cups that were intended for the use of worshiping God. And so he's just using them for his party. You can see why God would be even more offended at what's going on. Now, here's where the party takes a turn, okay? This is what, Belshazzar's doing his thing. He's partying with his friends. And then the text says this. Suddenly, they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace. So how many of you have ever been to that party? Anybody? (laughs) You know, you're doing your thing, you're having fun with your friends, things get carried away, and you're like, who sees the hand? Does anybody else see the hand, or is it just me? Who put something in my drink? Well, that's what's happening here. Belshazzar gets freaked out. He shouts to everyone and demands... That they bring him the wise men, all of his wisest people, the enchanters, it says, the astrologers. He said, bring them to me. Whoever can read this writing on the wall and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor. And I will have a gold chain placed around his neck. And he will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But none of them could do it. None of them. These were his wisest guys and they couldn't figure it out. So the queen said, there is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy God. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight and understanding and wisdom like that of the gods. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel comes to the king, and the king makes him the same promises. He says, I will give you a purple robe, meaning I will make you royalty. I'll give you a gold chain, meaning I will make you wealthy. And I'll make you the third highest ruler in the kingdom, meaning you're going to be powerful. Daniel says, thanks, but you can keep your gifts. But I will tell you what the writing means. And so he started by reminding Belshazzar that all the power Nebuchadnezzar had before him was given to him by God. And that because of his arrogance, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was taken away from him. He, it, the, the text says, when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. And then he said this to Belshazzar, you knew all this, yet you have not humbled yourself. He told Belshazzar, look, You were around. You saw it happen. You know the games that Nebuchadnezzar played with God. And you're playing all the same games. So from here, Daniel goes on to explain what the words were and their meaning to Belshazzar, which we'll take a look at in a minute. But Before that, why don't we pray? Father, we're thankful. Thankful to be here today, first of all. Thankful that uh, we can worship as one church, though we're all over the place. And thankful that we can look at a story that's thousands of years old and yet it's still relevant to our lives. So give us ears to hear, eyes to see, whatever we need to receive what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the question, the obvious question might be, what does this part of the Bible have to do with my life? What does this part of the Bible have to do with my life? And maybe a better way to frame it for today is what should writing on the wall say to me what should writing on the wall say to us i think it should prompt us to ask ourselves three questions and that's what we're going to talk about today the first question is this am i moving too fast am i moving too fast if writing if writing on the wall is the only thing that will get our attention it's fair to ask yourself the question am i moving too fast our culture places an incredibly high value on production and output. And we're often measured only by what we've achieved or will achieve. And it's not bad to want to achieve great things. I think everybody in here, everybody at the campuses would agree, we want to achieve great stuff in our lives. But the problem is in the equation that culture around us uses. It sounds something like this. Activity plus achievement equals personal worth. And personal worth is something we connect to our significance. Therefore, unless we we outperform everybody around us, we're always struggling to find our significance. We're always struggling to believe that we have value. So we find ourselves competing relentlessly for relationships, recognition, even for respect. The pace might make us productive, but it also makes us completely distracted to what God wants to do in our lives. So if culture's greatest weapon against our faith is distraction, then it's pace and hurry that pronounce the spell. There was an experiment done a few years ago. It was written about in um, American Journal of Psychology. It was about five years ago. And it was conducted by a group of researchers who wanted to understand the effect of frantic activity in social settings. So they conducted this experiment with a group of mice. And they found that it took a high dose of amphetamines to kill a mouse living in solitude. But that a group of mice would start hopping around and hyping each other up so much that a dose 20 times smaller was lethal. It turns out that the environment they lived in had a powerful effect on their lives. What's more is they, they learned that if they put a mouse in the cage that had not been injected with amphetamines at all, if they put it in the cage with the frantic mice, that mouse, almost said mice, that mouse would die within just a few minutes of the injected mice dying. So what are we supposed to learn from this kind of research? That a lot of times... The danger is in the environment around us. I don't know if you believe that. I think it's true. I think the danger a lot of times is in the environment around us. We might think that only a mouse would be so foolish to hang out with other mice who were living at such a frantic, hurried pace that they would put their own lives at risk. But that's not true, is it? We do it also. The message of our culture comes at us like this continual stream. We will help you move faster. Act now. Don't delay. You can buy it now if you'll just stretch. No money down. Easy monthly payments. You can earn it if you'll just stay a little longer, work a little harder, run a little faster. It's okay to be frantic and empty and stressed and exhausted because that's the way everybody else is we can help you move faster. That's what the culture whispers to us. Soren Kierkegaard says this, the press of busyness is like a charm. It makes us feel important. It keeps the adrenaline pumping. It means we don't have to look too closely at the heart. This is exactly where Belshazzar was living. Feeling important with his adrenaline pumping but he was completely incapable of examining his own heart. Now, for many of us, the danger is a little different. The great danger is not that we will renounce our faith like Belshazzar. It's that we'll become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we would settle for a mediocre version of it. Let me say that again because I think a lot of us live here. The danger is not that you'll renounce your faith, walk away from God. It's that you'll let yourself become so rushed and preoccupied that you'll settle for a mediocre version of it. John Ortberg would tell you that the problem with hurry is this. Hurry doesn't come from a disordered life. Hurry comes from a disordered heart. He would also say that the most serious sign of hurry sickness is the diminished capacity to be loved. Love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible because love takes time. And time is one thing that hurried people do not have. I would take it a step further and say that another serious problem with hurry sickness is the capacity to be loved. To experience love and connection authentically requires that we slow down. It requires that we move at a slower pace. But this is where so many of us live. Wanting to love, wanting to be loved, but we can't figure out why we feel this emptiness on the inside. Because hurry prevents us from doing it. 2,000 years ago, God decided to write on the wall of humanity in the person of Jesus because he had something to say about our emptiness. I don't know if you remember the story, but Jesus first met. Uh, Peter, James, and John on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias. He was speaking to a group of people. And like every time Jesus spoke, the the crowd just kept growing and growing and growing until eventually he didn't have any room. He needed some space. So he stepped into a boat, just happened to be a boat that belonged to Peter. And he asked Peter, would you push out just a little bit from shore so that he would have a better vantage point from which to keep talking to the people? So he did. And as he finished, he looked down at Peter and he said, hey, why don't you push out from shore a little further and let down your nets for a catch? Now, this is an interesting thing to say to Peter because Peter was a fisherman. This was his thing. This was his trade. In fact, he probably was thinking like, hey, uh, Jesus is kind of my deal. I, I'll, I'll do the fishing, you do the teaching. Maybe it'll work better like that. So so Peter even says to him, hey, look, man, we've been out all night. We haven't caught a thing. We've already even started cleaning our nets. Jesus doesn't respond. There's this awkward silence. Somehow Jesus in this moment says nothing, and yet he says everything. Because Peter's probably trying to busy himself after he says, hey, you know, we've kind of done this already. We tried it last night, didn't catch anything. I can see him fiddling around in his boat, trying to avoid eye contact, maybe looking at one of his friends like, he's still looking at me, isn't he? Jesus doesn't say anything. Peter gets it and realizes he's not letting it go. And so he says, but because you say so, we'll give it a shot. So he pushes out from shore, throws his nets over the side of the boat. And this is what the text says. And this time their nets were so full of fish they began to tear. Now remember, Peter had been out all night and caught nothing. But after letting Jesus interrupt his routine just one time, his nets were now so full of fish that his boat began to overflow. If culture's greatest tool to keep us from hearing God is distraction, then a choice to slow down and start listening might change everything. What we can learn from Peter in the story is this. His boat was empty until he decided to let his routine be interrupted. And so here's the question for us. Is it worth interrupting your pace to let God address your emptiness? Is it worth interrupting our pace to let God address our emptiness? I told you there are three things that we ought to be prompted to ask ourselves when we see writing on the wall. Here's the second. Am I listening to the right people? Am I listening to the right people? You guys would probably agree that oftentimes the choices we make in life come as a result of the company we keep. Would you agree with that? Do you remember what Daniel, what happened to Daniel when he and his friends arrived in Babylon? What the king did with their names? If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you might remember that the king changed them changed Daniel's name, changed his friend's name. He likely changed all of the names of the exiles that came to Babylon because it was a Babylonian custom. It was their way of shaming them. This is important because it reminds us that one of culture's greatest goals is to redefine our identities. This is a way we can become distracted by being discouraged about what the culture says about us. Let me just give you an example of how culture messes with what we, how we see ourselves. So the culture tends to whisper messages like this. Oh, you don't have a successful career or a clear direction of where you're going in life, or maybe you're between jobs and not really making ends meet. We've got a name for that. We would say, you're a failure. And so we put that badge on like it's our identity. We start to believe and wonder, is that true? Or maybe there are some things in your life that you regret. Some mistakes, some bad choices, some shame. Because the culture around us entices us to compare ourselves to others, we begin to feel like we're worth less than those who don't have those issues in their lives. And so the culture says, well, maybe that's true. Maybe, in fact, you are worthless compared to those around you. And that becomes our identity. Or maybe you're living with some broken relationships in your your life. Maybe someone has left. Or maybe things just didn't work out the way that you wanted them to. And the culture has a name for that. They would look at you and say, well, maybe there's a reason that they left. Or you're alone. Maybe it's because you're unlovable. And we start to wonder, is that Is that true? Is that possible? Just like the king gave Daniel and his friends new names, the culture around us tends to whisper these identity-defining labels to us. But how many of you are glad this is not the end of our story? In in Ephesians, Paul tells, tells it to us this way. He is so rich In kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of Christ, the blood of his son, and forgave us our sin. So God says, listen, you're not a failure. You're forgiven. I'm taking that one away from you. In Deuteronomy, we're told, for you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Listen to this. Of all the people on the earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. So there's no way in the world that God looks at us and says, worthless. He says, I'm taking that one from you too. I look at you and I see such value that I say you're my treasure. 1 John 3.1 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is because it didn't know him. St. Augustine said God loves each of us as if there were only one of us, and so God removes any labels that we might be unlovable or alone or whatever and says they're just not true. In fact, you're known in every way by me, and I still love you. That's what God wants you to understand about your identity. When there's writing on the wall, it may be time to consider if you're listening to the right people. Are the people around you helping you understand your true identity as a child of God? Or are they distracting you from it? And here's the third thing I'd say we need to ask ourselves when there's writing on the wall. Do I need to make some new decisions in my life? Is it time for some new decisions in my life? When there's writing on the wall, it may be time to consider where you're going. Another way to say it would be when there's writing on the wall, it might be time to look at the direction you want to go versus the direction you are going. And are they actually the same place? When Emma was a little bit younger, she asked me a question that was kind of similar. I was in the kitchen cleaning out the fridge uh, that Just, you know, some old stuff needed to be tossed. It was trash day probably the next day. And I grabbed a bottle of wine that was in the fridge, set it on the counter. We don't really drink wine in the house because I've never acquired the taste. Dana kind of drinks it a little bit, but this bottle had been sitting there forever. And I thought it's probably time to get rid of it. So I set it on the counter. And, uh, and Emma looks at it and she goes, what does wine taste like? And I thought, well, I don't know how to handle this. But I said, do you want to smell it? And she goes, Yeah. So I I try to get the top off. I don't know how to do a cork. I've never drank wine. So I'm trying to unscrew it first of all. It doesn't work. Finally, I get the top off, slide it in front of her. She pulls it up close, smells it, and goes, oh, it smells like grandma. (laughs) No joke. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, because my mom is here. This is a step-grandparent who you'll likely never meet. But should she ever show up at church and you tell her that story, I'm going to selectively forget what you're talking about. (laughs) That's what she said. Sometimes what you want to smell like and what you actually smell like are different. Sometimes where you want to go in your life and where you're actually going are also different. And writing on the wall is intended to warn us of what is in front of us. That's what God was doing for Belshazzar. He wrote three words, one of them twice, to warn him of where his life was going. Let's look at the words for a second. The first word is mene. Say mene. The second word is tekel. Say that. You got to do the hard K like tekel. Do it. That's terrible, but it's okay. We'll keep going. Actually, we have no idea how these words are pronounced because they're written in an unknown language. It's similar to Aramaic, but it's not the same. So we're just kind of guessing. The third word is parson. Say parson. Now, thankfully, because this is an unknown language, we have verses 25 to 28, which tells us exactly what they mean. After Daniel tells the king he doesn't want his gifts, he gives him the meaning of the words. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought them to an end. Tekel Means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Weighed and found wanting. If you've ever wondered where that phrase came from, here it is. And parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, if you're a king, this is not great news. This is not what you want to hear. He couldn't have been encouraged by this. But what blows me away is his response. Do you remember what Belshazzar said he would do for the person who told him the meaning of the words? He said he'd do three things. That he would give him a purple robe, that he would give him gold, and that he would make him the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That's what he said he would do before the meaning of the words was revealed to him. And what did he do? Exactly that. Nothing changed about Belshazzar. He did exactly that. Daniel told him what the words meant. He gave him the gold. He he gave him a purple robe, made him third highest in the kingdom. Here's why that's interesting. If nothing about us changes after God speaks to us, we probably missed what he was saying. If we're living the same way after God speaks to us as before he spoke to us, we missed what he was saying. And Belshazzar missed it. His heart was so distracted that he seems to have completely missed what God wanted him to hear. The story does not end well for Belshazzar. He died that same night. Darius took over the kingdom and that was the beginning of the kingdom being divided right there. There was writing on the wall but because his heart was so distracted he missed it. So what about us? What about us? Is there writing on your wall? Is God showing you something that He really wants you to see? At the very least, I think God is showing us in this chapter that only He has the answers we seek. And here's why I'd say that think about it. He wrote a message to an uninterested king in an unknown language. The king called in all of his wisest people and they couldn't figure it out. Then the queen said to him, get Daniel. He has the spirit of the holy God inside him. And Daniel was able to explain it. So at the very least, I believe God is saying to each one of us that we can never make sense of life until we start listening to the one who created it. We will never know what we're made for until we get to know the one who made us. You can try, you can try and try, pull all your best resources together just like Belshazzar did, but on your own, apart from God, life will never make sense. It wasn't designed to. It requires courage. Let's be honest. It requires courage to push away distraction in life to slow down, and to hear what God wants to say to us. Making decisions in life always requires courage. But just a little bit of courage could change everything about you, couldn't it? We tend to live our lives in two distinct columns. The do-it-now column and the it-can-wait column. Do-it-now and it-can-wait. The problem is that when we're distracted, We get the wrong things in the wrong columns. We get things mixed up. Do you want to be a a better friend, a better spouse, a better parent? Are you moving in that direction? Or is it time for some new decisions? And would it make make any difference if family time and career commitment switched columns? What would that look like? What would that do in your life? On Friday, our 13-year-old was getting ready for school, and uh, after Emma finished breakfast, she started gathering up her stuff. She grabbed her lunch and her backpack and her phone and started to kiss me on the cheek and uh, walked out the front door to sit on the porch and wait for her ride. I was busy cleaning up the kitchen, and I realized I'm about to miss a moment here. She's just sitting out there waiting for her ride, happy, content to you know, tap away on her phone, and I'm missing a moment. So I put everything down, and I walked out, sat down beside her on the steps, and we waited for her ride, you know, maybe 10 minutes. Nothing, probably, very. if you ask her, she's going to say it didn't change her life. We didn't talk about the deep meaning of life, we just sat and talked. But I realized those are the moments that I miss when I'm distracted, when I'm busy. And those are the moments that makes some of the loudest statements to the people we love. They say, you matter more than whatever might be on my agenda. Those are messages that people really need to hear. Do you wanna experience a closer relationship with God? Are you moving in that direction? Or is it time for some new decisions? Would it make a difference if the time you spent with God and the time you spent on social media switched columns? What would that look like? What would that do in your life? Here's the question I want to leave you with today there's the direction you want to go, and there's the direction you're going. Are they the same? Or is it time for some new decisions? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you redefine us when we get confused about who we are. You remind us that we're loved by you, treasured by you, that we're held in a position of honor and favor that we just don't deserve. But yeah, because of your goodness, you give it to us and you pour it out every day. I pray that you give each of us whatever courage it takes to consider where we're headed, where we want to go, and if we need to make some new decisions that would take us there. I pray that you give us each courage to be able to tell whether or not we're distracted from you and whether or not we're satisfied with that. Lord, we don't want a mediocre version of our relationship with you. We want all that you have to give us. And so we ask for it now in Jesus' name.